Turn with me in your NIV Bibles or your bulletin. Find your bulletin insert with our passage printed upon it today. We're beginning a three-part series on wise ways of living out of the book of Proverbs. And we begin with this very famous passage in the third chapter uh, today for this first sermon of the three. We'll begin to read at verse 5 and read through verse 10 and let us read the Word of God together. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Perhaps you saw the Peanuts comic strip where Charlie Brown is going to Lucy for psychiatric help as he often does. His question sounds simple. What can you do when life seems to be passing you by? And Lucy takes Charlie Brown by the hand and says, follow me. She says, do you see that huge horizon? See how big this world is. Have you ever seen any other worlds? And Charlie Brown says, no. She continues, as far as you know, this is the only world, right? Right, Charlie Brown says. Lucy presses on. There are no other worlds for you to live in, right? Right. And you were born in this world, right? Right. Well, live in it then. Five cents, please. Now, we may disagree with Lucy's counseling technique, but she really is on to something as far as making the most out of our lives and really living in the time God has given us on this earth. And if we press her opinion a little further, then we might have the question of how or what to do as we live. How should we live? And what should we do? As someone once said, it doesn't take much strength to do things, but it requires a great deal of strength to decide what to do. In many of the time management and leadership books that are out in the bookstores in this day and time, we see that same general truth put forward. How do we actually decide what to do? And we see all of these principles, you know, whether they're seven or twelve or whatever they happen to be, principles for living effective lives. And that's what Proverbs 3, really the whole book of Proverbs, is all about. But especially this famous passage in chapter 3, principles to live by for those who try to serve God in this world in which He's placed us. 
and we can see three very basic principles which are really positive exhortations within the body of this passage, teaching that Solomon is giving here, not just to his son, but to anyone who reads these words. And these three life lessons are where we'll spend our time in this sermon this morning. They are trust in the Lord with all your heart, fear the Lord and shun evil, and honor the Lord with your wealth. And of course the first principle is the most well-known statement in this passage, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Over the years I've had several... Excuse me, several church members for whom this was their favorite verse in all of Scripture. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. You see, just in case we don't understand those simple words about trusting in the Lord with all our heart, Solomon follows them with the opposite of trusting in God, which is trusting in ourselves. He just puts it negatively here. Lean not on your own understanding. In other words, trusting in God means that we do not make decisions based upon what we think, but rather what God would have us do. Notice how God's name is a part of each of these principles That's really why I settled on these three as the points for this sermon because each of them say the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Fear the Lord. Honor the Lord. And of course we know in our English Bibles whenever we see that the Lord with Lord in capital letters we're talking about Yahweh in the Hebrew text. This is the covenant-making God, the covenant-initiating God, the the covenant-keeping God, the God who wants a relationship with His people. This is Solomon's way of telling us that these exhortations, each of them, is charging us to give up our own little self-centered worlds and replace them with a God-centered way of life. If we're going to live the wise life, we must yield to what God would have us do, not simply go our own way. As one commentator put it, the contrast here is not between sacred wisdom on one hand and secular wisdom on the other, but between being wise in our own eyes or having favor in the sight of God Himself. The way in which Solomon parallels this trust in the Lord with leaning not on our own understanding indicates that trust is faith in the very goodness of God's ways. Ways which have been revealed in the covenantal teaching given to Israel, such as we see in the law, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, but also such as we see in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, like this book of Proverbs. And ultimately, this means that those who choose the way of wisdom as their own trust that God has their best interests at heart. 
that in fact he has a plan of how he wants things to take place and they are willing to stake their lives on it. Do you believe that God has a plan for your life? This is where the rubber meets the road in our day-to-day living. Are we going to seek to do what God wants us to do or are we going to follow our own way? Unless we misunderstand, as one commentator put it, this verse should not be used to support the notion that this confidence in God is a sort of blind trust that suspends critical judgment on our part. Rather, the student of wisdom learns to have confidence that living for God is the most reasonable thing to do. It's the most prudent thing to do. It's the wise thing to do, and this will be proved as God makes the path straight. I want us to think about what it really means to lean on our own understanding because if we are truly confessors today, we will admit that that's what we do most of the time. We lean on our own understanding. And we have family members do that who aren't involved in the life of the church at all. Or they may be involved in the life of the church and yet they are going on their own understanding, going their own way, and we see them suffer because of the choices that they're making. Think of Peter and that wonderful what I call Jekyll Hyde story concerning him in Matthew 16, where in one minute he is being blessed by Jesus himself because he's just said in answer to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, you remember, gets so excited. Blessed are you, Simon. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And right after Jesus says that, he begins to give his disciples teaching to the effect that the Son of Man, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed. And what does Peter do? Do you remember? He takes Jesus and begins to rebuke him. And this is where Jesus turns and on this one he had just given blessings to for being so smart because God had revealed truth in his life through his mouth. Jesus begins to say, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me for you're not on the side of God, but of men. You see, Peter has his own agenda going on. Even though God just revealed to him in one moment that Jesus was the true Messiah, the Son of the living God, in the very next moment, Peter is trusting his own ideas as to what should happen with Jesus, this man who is the Messiah. And as Jesus makes clear, this means Peter's not on God's side. Now, do you understand what that means? 
that means that trusting in the Lord means that even when God's will seems counterproductive, even when His will means suffering, even when His will requires the kind of sacrifice on our part that seemingly has no benefit or even purpose, we nevertheless trust in God because He's trustworthy. I mentioned Peter because we're just like him one minute. We know in our hearts exactly what God wants and we work for that. And the very next minute we're faced with something unexpected and instead of seeking God's wisdom on the matter, instead of going to Him in prayer, we jump right in head first with our own ideas about what needs to happen and should happen and according to the teaching in our passage, that is sheer foolishness. It's the opposite of trusting in the Lord. Well, as we go through this passage, we can see that we're called not only to trust in the Lord, but also to fear Him and shun evil. And this idea of fearing God is nothing new because back in the first chapter of this book of Proverbs, in verse 7, we see the overarching theme for this entire book of Proverbs, which is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you want to learn in life, if you want to be wise and not foolish, then the very beginning point is the fear of the Lord. Now, we won't spend a lot of time on this because we've talked about this topic before. To fear God means to honor Him, to revere Him, to live in awe of who He is, to be devoted to Him and His will. And this very attitude toward God in life where we lift Him up and lower ourselves, where we have a worshiping submission to Him provides the proper avenue through which divine wisdom flows. You see, if we truly fear God, then the automatic or default position of our lives will be to shun evil because we know that God hates evil. That's what leads Peter to write in his first letter, quoting Psalm 34, that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You see, if we're not in awe of God, if we fail to revere Him in His ways, if we do not in essence fear Him, then we'll not order our lives in a manner that's compatible with His will. But as we do fear Him, then we have the proper framework in place to live lives that actually obey God. This is why Psalm 1 speaks the way it does. Because you see, it's a wisdom psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Scoffers is one of the fools that the book of Proverbs talks about. It has categories of fools. It's one of the fools that Proverbs talks about all of the time. And you see, the one who's blessed shuns all of that evil. They don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. They don't sit 
or stand in the way of sinners. They don't sit in the seat of scoffers. But what do they do? Their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on His law, he or she meditates day and night. We begin to understand that as we fear God, it's not simply that we shun evil, as important as that is, we also begin to gravitate toward God's will and begin to have a love for it as expressed in His written Word. Now Solomon tells us here in our text that this attitude, this type of life, fearing the Lord and shunning evil, will bring health to our bodies and nourishment to our bones. Psalm 1 simply states the same truth through the tried and true word blessed. It's not a promise so much as it's a typical result of this type of life. And once again, as we fear God, we live a God-centered reality and not a life with actions and decisions that we dream up on our own. And finally, we see that we not only trust in the Lord, we not only fear the Lord, but also honor the Lord. And notice how we are to honor Him with our wealth, and even more specifically with the first fruits of our crops. Imagine a preacher working money into the sermon. You know, Proverbs has a lot to say about money because part of the wise life, or foolish life for that matter, has to do with how we use what God has placed in our care. Next week, we're going to be taking a look at the tongue, a wise use of the tongue, and that's in chapter 11. And chapter 11, two main subjects in that chapter are the tongue and money. And we find that very often in Proverbs. But getting back to this particular verse, just because you and I aren't farmers, don't think that this verse has anything to say to us. I mean, if you have gardens, you know what it's like to always look for that first tomato, those first green beans that are so young and tender, that first few ears of sweet corn, that's always better than anything else. That first fruit, those first vegetables from the garden. This is what God is talking about. This is what's offered to God. It's the first and thus the best. And even though we aren't farmers, it's this notion of giving to God first. That's what's behind the idea of first fruits. You know, when you get paid, the fact that you write your check for your tithe to the church first, that's symbolic of giving God the first fruits. And we could get a little more specific here. I've actually been asked this question. I'm not dreaming this up here for you this morning. I've actually been asked before. I've had had a church member come to me and say, you know, I, I know that Scripture teaches tithing, and I believe in that, but do you tithe before taxes or after taxes? Because, you know, I can't see that the Bible says anything about that, and it doesn't. But the Bible has a lot to say 
about first fruits giving. And it seems to me that if we're giving to God first, then we are going to tithe before taxes. God gets the first gift, and then all the rest comes out for our daily living. You know, people in ancient times would give gifts to the king just because he was the king in, in honor of his office. And to some extent, that's the idea behind these words, honor the Lord here in Proverbs 3, except that we are doing more than respecting God with this gift. Those who give are acknowledging God as the source and great provider of all that we have. And as one commentator stated, if there's any area in which people in every age are tempted to be wise in their own eyes, it's in the fantasy that wealth is a product of their own competence and nothing more. Think about the Gospel of Luke, the parable of the rich fool, the man who had these abundant crops come. Was it out of his hard work? No, it was because God blessed him. And what did he say? I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to build larger barns and keep it all and and just sit up and, and take it easy. And that night, Jesus says in the parable that God called him what? A fool. He's a fool because just like the teaching of this text, he hasn't honored God with his wealth. That's why this teaching here by Solomon answers such a fantasy by giving us a glimpse of full barns and full vats of wine. In other words, products of human labor that in the end are beyond our control. Any farmer worth his or her salt will tell you that they plant their crops the same way, usually every year, using the same amount of fertilizer, and some years yields are better than others. It's up to God and the amount of rain He sends and the sunshine and even temperatures as to what kind of yield will ultimately be realized. It's just another picture of the fact that those who wish to live wisely will put their entire lives in God's hands, not just their spirituality, not just their hopes and dreams, but every aspect of living, meaning even what they earn or receive as gifts. And it's another picture, ultimately, of how we are indebted to God. Just like the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, as Psalm 24 reminds us, so does the gift of salvation belong to and come from God Himself. In fact, in Romans 8, Paul makes the point that we are not indebted to the flesh. He's he's talking there in Romans about the flesh and the spirit, the flesh and the spirit. And he says we're not indebted to the flesh as if to say we are indebted to the spirit. He says in Romans 8 too that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. You see how we're indebted to God's Holy Spirit because He comes 
and causes our hearts to see our need for the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ and all the sacrifice that He made on the cross for us. Paul goes on to say a little later that if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through His Spirit which dwells in you. You see, in this world, you and I have within us always this downward pull of sin. Sin is constantly trying to pull us under the surface of water, as it were, so that we might drown. It's this desire that sin gives us to live our own little self-centered worlds. But God has gone to the depths of the grave through the cross of His Son, Jesus Christ, and all the way to the heights of the resurrection in order to give us a power that will make it possible to live for Him. Indeed, a power to trust in Him with all of our hearts, a power to fear Him all of our days and shun evil and to honor Him with our resources each day that we live. And may God bless us to that end in the days to come to His honor and glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.